This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. Lectures upon the Principal Prophecies of the Revelation by Alexander MacLeod, Doctor of Divinity, 1814, as read by Samantha Elosice. Advertisement. To those who heard the lectures on prophecy delivered from the pulpit and at whose solicitation the resolution to give them publicity from the press was adopted, the author owes an explanation. It was impossible to comprise in one volume of moderate size the whole of his discourses on the apocalypse and it would be indiscreet to present to the subscribers two volumes instead of one. He has pursued a middle course. He has comprised, so far as the text would admit of it, the prospective history of modern times in the lectures which he has published, and he has reserved the remaining lectures for a subsequent publication at a convenient time. To the Reverend Dr. John B. Romine, My dear sir, I send this volume to you across the Atlantic as a tribute of respect and friendship. Should it live beyond the age which gave it birth, This address will serve, at least, to show my sense of your private worth as well as of your public usefulness and respectability. There are very few men more competent than yourself to judge of the merits of a work on the apocalyptical predictions. Of all my literary friends, too, you have been the first and the most intimate. Our acquaintance commenced while engaged in preparatory studies for the Ministry of Reconciliation and was speedily ripened into a mutual friendship which has since continued close and uninterrupted. I shall always remember with pleasure the select society in which we both first employed our pens in writing for the public. Our juvenile essays were produced for the marksman on the banks of the Mohawk in connection with two other valuable friends. One of these, the Reverend Dr. Lynn of Philadelphia, alas, was recalled from the servants of the church militant in the morning of his life and usefulness but not until he acquired merited celebrity and chastised with his pen the man who ventured to compare Socrates with Jesus Christ, that distinguished philosopher and arch-heretic, Dr. Priestley. Our other fellow member, Judge Miller, who now holds a seat in the Congress of the United States, still cherishes amidst the cares of legislation the friendship of early years. He will join me in the hope that your voyage may prove the means of re-establishing your health that your visit to Great Brenton and to the continent of Europe may prove agreeable and instructive, 
and that you may be restored in due time to your friends, to your flock, and to your country. With great esteem, I am, dear sir, your affectionate friend and fellow servant, Alexander MacLeod. The Preface However diversified may be the opinions and the wishes of Christians relative to ecclesiastical and political concerns, there is one principle in the belief of which all are united, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This truth supports their hopes, because it gives assurance that His will shall be done, and that the result of the present shaking of the nations shall be the establishment of righteousness and peace. The prophecies of the Apocalypse are on this account peculiarly interesting to men of understanding, for they not only illustrate the doctrine of the divine sovereignty and afford in their accomplishment additional evidence of the inspiration of the sacred scriptures, but also give a correct outline of the perspective history of both the Christian Church and of the nations, whose policy immediately affects the cause of the true religion. All men are, from the constitution of human nature, inclined to look forward as far as possible into futurity, and the man of wisdom will avail himself of his foresight in all his plans and pursuits. Human prescience is indeed very limited, and in the common concerns of life depends upon the acuteness of our penetration and the accuracy of our judgment. In the more important and interesting concerns of religion, divine revelation comes in aid of our natural faculties. He whose prescience is eternally perfect reveals in prophecy the things which shall be hereafter. Of the governor of the universe, it is impossible to form any correct idea which does not exclude imperfection. He is not wiser today than yesterday. His understanding is infinite. Having himself a perfect comprehension of all the circumstances which enter into the constitution of the lot of man, whether considered in an individual or collective capacity, it is in his power to give the history of future with as much facility as that of past events. To doubt this is to deny his perfection. To treat his predictions with neglect is inconsistent with becoming reverence for his wisdom and benevolence. From these remarks, it will appear obvious that the prospective history which the wisdom of heaven has provided for the Christian world is no less desirable as an object of benevolent curiosity than it is useful as a motive of action to the intelligent Christian and the virtuous statesman. Men, accordingly, who hold the first grade in the scale both of learning and native talent, have employed a portion of their time in the exposition of scripture predictions. It would be difficult to select from the list of their names those who have the best right to be first mentioned in this connection, but every scholar, however ignorant of the catalogue of scripture expositors, has heard of the man who so ably explained the law of nations in relation to both war and peace, and of him who demonstrated the laws which govern the material world, Grotius and Sir Isaac Newton. Both these men have furnished commentaries upon prophecy. The author of the lectures, now presented to the public, has had occasion to make frequent mention of the most distinguished writers on the same subject. Their names often sanction the interpretation which he gives, and when he dissents from their opinions, respect for their merit required that he should assign his reasons. To English literature we are certainly indebted for the best explanations of the Revelation, and the more recent works, published in Great Britain, afforded many facilities for the present undertaking. 
The writers of that nation have not, however, succeeded in keeping themselves free from the bias of political opinion. The terrible contest which at present agitates the whole family of nations scarcely tolerates a neutral, even in the literary or theological world. The admirers of the French Revolution have magnified its importance in, in its ultimate tendency to ameliorate the condition of society, and the advocates of the British policy have sought in prophecy for arguments to strengthen opposition to the Gallic conqueror. It is with the expounder of prophecy as with the writer of history, difficult to hold a pen uninfluenced by prejudice or partiality. Although Although the facts remain undisputed and unaltered, various affections will impart a variety of coloring to the representation. The human mind, too, is prone to attach undue importance to objects which, somehow, become very interesting and of this description are contemporary events and characters. The predictions, therefore, which are now fulfilling and about to be fulfilled, have been most subjected to misinterpretation and both the events and characters of the present age have been complemented with applications of certain prophecies which respect quite other persons and periods. In relation, in relation to chronological considerations also, a very natural mistake has been frequently committed. More regard has been paid to the splendor of events and the contiguity in respect of their time than to the connection of moral causes with their proper effects. Nor has the principal design of the prophetic history always been kept sufficiently in view by the several expositors. The apocalypse is intended less for personal than for social improvement in religion. It particularly illustrates the history of those great moral principles which affect the public interests of true religion, and neither the revolutions of nations nor extraordinary men are otherwise esteemed worthy of notice than as connected with the prevalence or depression of such principles. To this idea, the author has given a prominent place in these lectures. He generally follows in his interpretation the path of Bishop Newton as improved by Mr. Faber, but on several interesting subjects he descends from both these eminent expositors, connecting the prophecies of Daniel with the book of Revelation. He has given an outline of the history of the moral world in the order and within the period contemplated in these inspired writings. He has endeavored faithfully to apply the fact to the prediction and to make true religion the meridian line to which the several parts of the crowded map are referred. Introductory Lecture 1 Revelation 1, 3 Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. This introductory benediction is repeated with little variation toward the close of the Apocalypse, chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. It bespeaks your attention, Christians, to the course of expository lectures upon which I now enter. The subject of these lectures is the principal prophecies of the book of Revelation. Something, I am aware, is necessary in order to overcome the prejudices which very generally prevail, even among the disciples of our Lord, against the careful study of a portion of sacred scripture which is considered as too obscure to be well understood and too remote from the immediate comforts and duties of a life 
of godliness to be made the subject of pulpit discussion. No words which I can use appear to me so well calculated to obviate such unjust and pernicious prejudices as those which have been read as the text of this discourse and which I repeat in order to explain. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. The prophecy is a characteristic name which, by divine inspiration, is given to the book which closes the canon of scripture and which is entitled The Revelation of John the Divine. It contains, it is true, like other parts of the sacred volume, precepts, promises, doctrines, suitable reflections on the past, and a description of many things actually existing at the time. Yet so great a portion of it is devoted to a prediction of the future as to justify the application of this title to the whole work. The time is at hand. The writer and the first readers of the Apocalypse lived at the commencement of the time of which the book gives the perspective history. The whole period contemplated is indeed a very long one. Since this prophecy was written, many generations of men have passed away to the invisible world, and still it may be said with truth to you who read and hear, the time is at hand. The most important era referred to in these predictions is still future and rapidly approaching. It is indeed with respect to some always at hand. The grand period, one, as to its character, includes many distinct periods, distant too far from one another, which whether taken severally or collectively, constitute the time in which the Son of God manifestly obtains the victory over all opposing power. This is emphatically the day of the Lord. Although this great day is, as it respects the successive generations of men, removed to a vast distance, it is usual with the inspired writers, footnote, Isaiah 13.6, Joel 2.1, Philippians 4.5 and 1 Peter 4.7 and a footnote to announce it as near because to every individual this is in fact the case the day of his death is to every man the day of Christ's coming he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein are those who study and understand the book of Revelation and who regulate their hearts, their lives, the principles which they embrace and the connections which they form agreeably to that view which it gives of true religion in respect to the great social concerns both civil and ecclesiastical of the several nations of the earth. Keep those things which are written therein signifies more than to preserve the text uncorrupted. Greek word, the word here employed implies obedience to the commandment, the exemplification of the great principles unfolded in this prophecy in our Christian practice. Footnote. Greek word is used to describe the sum of Christian obedience in the great apostolical commission, Matthew 28.20. See also 14.17 and 23.3. And the Apostle John frequently employs it in the same sense. End of footnote. Blessed is he that readeth, they that hear, and keep, etc. This is, this is our encouragement to study and practically apply the book of the Revelation. Those who understand its principles and reduce them to practice shall enjoy peculiar blessings from the Lord. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have 
received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Our Lord assures us that he will confer his blessings on all who attend to the doctrines of the gospel and yield to his holy precepts evangelical obedience. Luke 11.18 Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. John 13.17 If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Besides, however, the felicity which the Christian enjoys through the medium of his knowledge of the great doctrines of the gospel and of his practical holiness, there is a special beatitude in the understanding of the peculiar predictions of the Apocalypse. This book affords its proper element to that noble disinterestedness which belongs to the Christian as a member of the Church of God, for in this book the state of the Church is displayed in relation to her members and her head, her friends and her enemies, her troubles and her triumphs. Such views are always highly interesting. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel! For from the tops of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. This exposition of my text will, I trust, supersede the necessity of apology for endeavoring to turn the attention of the congregation during one part of the public exercises of the Sabbath to the words of the prophecy of this book. And it justifies me in laying before you in this introductory discourse the true nature and design of this prophecy, the character of its style, and the proper mode of interpretation, together with the several uses to which it is subservient. Number 1. What is the nature and design of this prophecy? It is important in entering upon the study of the Revelation to form precise ideas of the general nature and design of the whole system of sacred prophecy and of the special design of this remarkable part of the system. The word prophecy is used, both in scripture and in common discourse, with some latitude of signification, but it is not difficult to discover its proper meaning. Greek word is applied in the New Testament to any declaration delivered by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, footnote, 1 Peter 1.20, end of footnote, to the power or gift of declaring divine truth, footnote, Romans 12.6, end of footnote, and even to the actual exercise of such gift or faculty, footnote, 1 Thessalonians 5.20, end of footnote. But it principally signifies the prediction by inspiration of future events. This is the proper meaning. The other significations must be referred to figurative usage. It is observable, too, that in all these applications there is included the idea of divine agency, and the common use of the word also implies the prediction of what is future. But we are not to confound with prophecy that which is no more than a conjecture of future probabilities, nor even that which is certain prediction of the effect from a correct knowledge of the causes in action. Human sagacity, said a man of a very sound and discriminating mind, footnote, Maclaurin, end of footnote, can foresee events that happen according to the uniform cause of nature, or events of which there are probable causes existing at the time when they are foretold, yet innumerable things are beyond its reach. Nor is there any true history in the world, but whoever reads it and knows the truth of it is fully persuaded that it was impossible to have written it after the events happened, without sufficient information, or before the events happened, without inspiration, which is the only way of, this, of sufficient information of things to come. 
The true idea of prophecy is the prediction by divine inspiration of future events not foreseen by human sagacity. The power of predicting is alone from God and depends on that foreknowledge which was from the beginning employed about whatsoever comes to pass, and the exercise of this power on the part of the prophets is uniformly under the divine direction without being in any case or in any degree subject to the mere will of man. The objects, consequently, about which it is employed, the time and circumstances with which the prediction is connected, and the degree of perspicuity and minuteness of detail with which the event is laid before us, depend entirely upon him whose understanding is infinite. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It is certainly a legitimate interference from this fact that the design of the system of prophecy is great and important. It is worthy of its author. But for a knowledge of that design, we must submit to be taught by a divine instructor. It may be said of this, as of the other parts of the system of the grace of God toward men, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered, entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. In vain should we attempt to discover otherwise the objects, most fit in the history of the universe, about which Jehovah should employ the powers of his prescience. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. The wisdom of the world is foolishness. That, however, which is declared in the scriptures to be the object of the system of prophecy is one, which in the estimation of the most intelligent men must appear both important and magnificent. An object for which the pillars of the earth are upheld, which angels contemplate with an interest unconceivable by mortals, and which heaven hath destined to become the perfection of beauty, that holy empire which is composed of redeemed men predestinated to shine in perpetual glory with the Son of God at their head as their law king and lawgiver. Jesus Christ and his church in him is the grand object of scripture prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. A spirit of prophecy, said Bishop Hurd at the Lincoln's Inn Lecture, pervading all time, characterizing one person of the highest dignity and proclaiming the accomplishment of one person the most beneficent, the most divine that imagination itself can project. The prophetic system is but the prospective history of the mediatorial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and it embraces nothing else but for the sake of its connection with this object. The apocalypse is in a distinguished manner the testimony of our Savior and the history of his kingdom. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. The head of the church foresaw the danger to which his people would be exposed in that dark and painful period which intervenes between the apostolical age and the millennium. He foresaw the opposition of the nations to his own kingdom. He foresaw his people scattered over these nations, influenced and polluted by their customs and maxims, severed into factions, often turned against one another to subserve the policy of their enemies, generally oppressed and persecuted by the powers of the world. And he placed this book in their hands to be their light and their comfort. It is the peculiar object of this book to describe the true state of the moral world, to point out the abuse of the institutions of heaven which has obtained in society, 
and to prescribe the duty of faithful men in relation to the corrupt social establishments which from time to time should exist, in opposition to that moral order which the gospel of the kingdom of God promises ultimately to introduce in church and state over all the nations of the earth. In all the prophecies of the Apocalypse, respect is accordingly had not to the gratification of an idle curiosity, but to our instruction and comfort. The great outline of the events predicted may be previously discovered with certainty, and the nearer the time of the accomplishment of the prophecy approaches, the minute circumstances may be the more accurately traced. The exact correspondence of the fact with the prediction is not, however, to be seen until the event comes to pass. God gave these and the prophecies of the Old Testament, said Sir Isaac Newton, not to gratify men's curiosities by enabling them to foreknow things, but that after they were fulfilled, they might be interpreted by the event and his own providence, not the interpreters, be then manifested thereby to the world. Number two. What is the character of the prophetic style, and what the rule of interpretation? Everyone who is acquainted with the writings of the prophets has undoubtedly remarked that the expressions which they use are highly figurative. Some recent expositors have on this account pronounced the prophetic style one sui generis, a symbolical style radically distinct from every other species of composition. Dr. Johnston considers it as of this description and distinguishes the hieroglyphic from the simple symbol. Footnote. There are two characters in this language. The one is uniformly called a hieroglyphic and the other a symbol in the commentary. An hieroglyphic is a complete figure made up of the assemblage of two or more parts into one picture and a symbol is single detached member. Introduction, page 4, Commentary on the Revelation. End of footnote. I, nevertheless, am entirely unable to see either the necessity or the use of considering the style in which the prophets wrote as essentially differing from that of every other part of the Bible or of subjecting it to quite different rules of interpretation. The oriental manner of expression in general and that of the sacred scriptures in particular abounds in splendid imagery and the descriptive part of divine revelation is fully as figurative as the predictive. Nor can I at all admit that predictions are never delivered in plain alphabetical language. The truth is, the writings of the prophets, even in those parts in which the style is truly symbolical, are subject to the same rules of interpretation which obtain in all other writings. In, in every composition we find figurative language, and in several authors of our own age we find an abundant use of the metaphor. Both the metaphor and the hieroglyphic are analogous to historical painting, and there is not a better test of the correctness of a metaphor than the one proposed by Dr. Blair, who in matters of criticism is excellent authority, namely, that we should try to form a picture of the several parts and see how they correspond. It is not, however, to be denied that this figurative style requires in order to be understood, a particular acquaintance with the several sources from which the principal part of its imagery is drawn. The earlier prophets selected their symbols from the well-known customs and arts of the Hebrews and the neighboring countries, Egypt and Chaldea. The writers of the New Testament joined to these the customs of Greece and Rome. The principal sources from which the Apocalypse draws its imagery are the following, that is, the natural world, 
the history contained in the scriptures of the Old Testament and the ecclesiastical polity of the Jews, including both the temple service and the synagogue. It is obvious from these considerations that in order to understand the phraseology of the book of Revelation, it is necessary not only to have contemplated with discernment the economy of the natural world, but moreover to be well versed in scripture history in connection with profane, and to be familiarly acquainted with the ordinances of religious worship as they were established in Judea. Such attainments will qualify a man for understanding the language of the prophecy of this book, but much more is necessary to understand the prophecy itself and be able to apply the prediction to its proper event. That event must be itself understood. A knowledge of true religion as differing from mere forms of godliness, from priestcraft and superstition, and a due measure of acquaintance with history, civil and ecclesiastical, are indispensably necessary to him who would point out the accomplishment of the apocalyptical predictions. We have therefore no reason to wonder that this book is not well understood in the Christian Church. No man is likely to make proficiency in any branch of knowledge without entering into the spirit of it, and it is impossible to enter into the spirit of the instruction communicated in this book without such religious discrimination as will distinguish, distinguish Christianity from the corrupt establishments of mere politicians. Before I give you the rules of interpretation, I think it necessary to meet an objection made to the style of the prophecies upon the score of obscurity. It inevitably follows from the nature of the prophecy itself and the character of the style in which it is delivered, as already described, that it is not easily understood. While this fact is both admitted and accounted for, it affords a striking evidence of that wisdom which inspired the mind and superintended the pen of the sacred writers. But we cannot admit that any sentence in this book is absolutely unintelligible or that the phraseology is undeterminate. To a novice in the sciences, the expressions of the mathematician, the botanist, and the chymist, however precise, will appear obscure and may be supposed to be a language sui generis. But a proficient in these several studies will not complain of the obscurity of the style which philosophy finds it necessary to employ in the instruction of her pupils. It is not in obtaining a knowledge of the words, so much as in understanding this subject, that the difficulty lies, in respect either to theology or any other science. The same observation will appear to the system of prophecy. Absolute unintelligibility is not to be affirmed of any part of the Bible. This would be inconsistent with, inconsistent with the goodness and wisdom of our heavenly instructor, because it would render such part entirely unprofitable. The scriptures are no further a revelation than they are intelligible. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, for no man understandeth him. So likewise, except ye utter words easy to be understood, ye shall speak unto the air. If I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. In the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that I might teach others also, than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. Footnote, 1 Corinthians 14, 1-19. footnote. A revelation, nevertheless, designed for men of every capacity, of every nation, and of every age, must, from the nature of the case, prove to many in any given age, in some instances, obscure. 
The Apostle Peter says of the epistles of his beloved brother Paul himself, notwithstanding his constant use of great plainness of speech, that they contain some things hard to be understood. Footnote. Second Peter 3.16. End of footnote. This also is the case with the prophetic part of Scripture, independently of all peculiarity of phraseology. No simplicity of diction could render a prophecy completely intelligible in all its circumstances, even after its accomplishment, to a person otherwise entirely ignorant of the fact to which it referred, and much less are the prophecies which remain to be fulfilled at the distance of ages to be comprehended by those who previously have no idea of the subject of which they treat. Precisely for the same reason, a detached paragraph in the celebrated histories of Hume and Robertson would appear unintelligible to a reader ignorant of the connection and utterly unacquainted with the era and the facts under contemplation. There is also another consideration which will tend to illustrate this subject. The same prophecy has, in some instances, reference to more than one event. These events may be perfectly distinct as to time and some other circumstances, although one as to the special intent of the prediction. Footnote. This principle is explained at great length by Bishop Hurd in Sermons on Prophecy. End of footnote. This frequently happens in those instances in which the prophets for the comfort of the believers under both testaments speak of the coming of Christ, of his kingdom, and of the consequent deliverance. Under the old dispensation, too, which made provision for many typical persons and events, the same prediction frequently respected first the type, but secondly and chiefly the antitype. Footnote. Real or affected ignorance on this principle characterizes that work of the once celebrated Thomas Paine, which he calls an examination of the passages in the New Testament quoted from the Old and called Prophecies Concerning Jesus Christ. This work was published by the author in New York a little before his death and shows that he who confessedly outlived personal respectability and all decency of manners also had lost that vigor of intellect for which, however frequently prostituted, he was once remarkable. He selects a few of the least prominent passages quoted from the Old into the New Testament, and showing that these had some reference to persons who lived before the coming of Christ, he infers that they were misrepresented when applied to our Lord. This deceitful attempt, attempt as dishonorable in its plan as it is feeble in its execution, execution can injure none but such as are already viciously inclined or exceedingly ignorant. There is, however, a work upon the same subject constructed with a very different design and leading to a different result worthy of attentive perusal. An essay on the prophecies relating to Messiah by Maclaurin. No man who possesses sufficient intellect to comprehend the reasoning employed by this very sensible author, author can rise up from a perusal of the essay without acknowledging that he has proved from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. End of footnote. We have admitted, you perceive, that there is some difficulty in ascertaining the precise event predicted by the prophets and have also accounted for this difficulty, as well from the nature of the subject, as the character of the style in which the prophecy is written. It is not to be forgotten, in connection with these remarks, that the degree of obscurity in which the prophecies are involved perfectly accords with the wisdom of God in his works of creation and providence. 
and elegant drapery thrown around the works of nature hide their secrets from the view of the negligent or superficial observer. And shall we suppose that the vast scheme of providence should be comprehended by the sons of men, or that the whole system of prophecy should be understood by those who are to act, frequently in ignorance of the design, a prominent part in its accomplishment? The Lord governs the sons of men, effectually indeed, for the fulfillment of his purposes, but yet without destroying the nature of their moral agency. He governs them as men, acting freely and being accountable for their conduct. It was never intended, therefore, that the prophecies should be fully understood by those who are destitute both of candor and of piety, men who would strive to prevent the event foretold, but who, as the case stands, may be the agents in bringing it to pass. Is it ever to be supposed that if the individual Jews who sacrificed Jesus had clearly seen from the ancient prophecies that he was the Messiah and that his kingdom was not of this world, and yet that with wicked hands they were to crucify and slay him, that they would have done so? Footnote. Johnson's comment on this text. End of footnote. Such is certainly the fact as affirmed by the spirit of prophecy. Daniel 12.10 The wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Every expositor has deemed it necessary to intermingle with the explanation of prophecy some rules of interpretation, or to specify in a more formal manner in his introduction those principles upon which he designed to proceed. Mead, Debuse, Warburton, Hurd, Johnston, and Woodhouse may be consulted upon this subject with great pleasure and profit by those who have leisure and inclination for such studies. I deem it sufficient for all useful purposes to lay before you in the most simple form those undisputed principles on which the language of prophecy is to be applied and understood. We shall have occasion in the course of these lectures to enter into more minute detail in proving the necessity of their application to certain specified cases in which I am constrained to differ from some of the respectable expositors who have gone before me. At present, I state only the following. Rules of Interpretation Number 1. Ascertain, from the connection, the subject which the prophecy has under consideration, and whatever may be the person or thing referred to, let it be contemplated not in a detached character, but as connected with the entire system of which it is a part. Number two, consider from what source the symbol or symbols used in the prophecy are derived. Number three, consider the place which the symbol employed in the prophecy literally occupies and the uses which it answers in the system from which it has been selected. Number, number four, apply the figure according to the correct analogy to the corresponding part of that subject of which the prophecy treats. It is upon these principles we explain all figurative language wheresoever we find it, and the only thing taken for granted in such interpretation is that the writer understands the power of language and is consistent with himself. The propriety of this admission will not be denied, so far as it respects the scripture style, by those who believe that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 3. It is proposed to review the principal uses which the study of this prophecy answers. Besides the particular object to be attained by the exhibition, beforehand, of the great concerns of the Church of God as furnishing a mass of information not otherwise within our reach, 
Prophecy answers many important collateral uses. The blessings pronounced by the Divine Spirit upon the head of him who attends to the Book of Revelation render it certain that this part of the prophetic system is intended to be extensively beneficial. Experience will justify our utmost expectations. Actual knowledge of the contents of the Apocalypse gives a happy excitement to all our religious principles of action, affords a standing miracle in support of the inspiration of the Bible, supplies ample proof of the decrees and providence of God, and furnishes unceasing warning to Christians to separate themselves from connection with the terrible apostasy which it reveals to view. Number one, the book of Revelation is remarkably calculated to excite our faith and patience, our hope and zeal in the service of God. The perfections of Jehovah, the dignity and excellence and affections of the Messiah, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the labors, the trials, the triumphs, and the final safety of the saints are repeatedly brought into view and are held up in so clear a light that we are made to feel an interest in the lot of the righteous. Our religion assumes more of the social and less of the selfish character. We become identified with the whole family of God, not only in fact, but also in our own interrupted apprehension. We are animated with a corresponding magnanimity, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. To the man of understanding... This book illustrates both the general principles of human action and the course which he, who sits enthroned on high, pursues in the administration of providence. It derives a light from authentic history and it reflects a light upon the facts and the reasonings which fall within the legitimate province of the historian. The mere knowledge of detached, of detached facts is of little value. An exposition of the character and the springs of human action and their causes and consequences, and of the purposes of the governor of the universe in relation to man. These are the great ends which history subserves, and these ends are in the best manner accomplished in the species of composition now under review. Nor are its uses limited to those who completely understand the events foretold in the predictions. The character of the event, the principles of human conduct in the exercise of which it is brought about, the design of heaven in its permission and control, the whole doctrine connected with it may be understood and will prove interesting and instructive, independently of a knowledge of the name of agents and the proper dates. The crime, the folly, the vanity of men of high and of low degree are depicted. The patience, the ardor, the benevolence of the virtuous are held forth to imitation. The divine wisdom and power and mercy and justice are exemplified and an excitement is given to religious emotions of every description by the expectation of great events even in those cases in which we remain ignorant of the precise point in actual history to which prophecy has respect. The doctrines taught in connection with the prediction of themselves afford increase of useful knowledge, give exercise and improvement to every virtuous principle, and thus conduce to the perfection of the man of God. Number two. Prophecy is a standing miracle in support of the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. The book which is emphatically called the Bible is confessedly the most important of all literary productions. The magnitude of its object and the excellency of its execution are unequaled by any other composition. 
the antiquity of its history, the sublimity of its doctrines, the purity of its morality, have ever recommended it to the attention of men of information. The simplicity and fidelity of its descriptions render it interesting to literary curiosity, and the grandeur of its eloquence will ever make it the companion of the man of taste. Satire, sophistry, affected contempt, and vulgar abuse have already, and for a long time, employed their most potent efforts to bring the sacred volume into disrepute, but their labor is very vanity. Its intrinsic excellence puts at defiance the wisdom of the world. The evidence of its authenticity is copious and clear and strong. The creator of the world has endowed its human inhabitants with a capacity of knowing him, their lawgiver and their judge. In his works he reveals his perfections to our whole race and we are left without excuse if we do not serve him. In his condescension he gave more ample means of knowledge and correction. He sent his word for our instruction. Reasoning and argument upon what is before us is a slow mean of acquiring any knowledge compared with conversation with one of superior intelligence. A few lectures will communicate to a youth the result of the observations and the reasonings of a sage. He who made the eye and the ear can communicate knowledge to man which otherwise must remain forever beyond the reach of our faculties. He did so. God in sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto our fathers. He speaks also unto us in his word. It is, it is sufficiently attested to that it is his word, that we do not follow a cunningly devised fable. He affected the minds of the prophets with an irresistible conviction that he himself spake unto them. It is in the power of omnipotence to preclude the possibility of deception. What he said was a revelation to them. It was accompanied with evidence of its supernatural origin. But how were others to be affected with such conviction? Shall our faith depend entirely on the testimony of men? It need not, it ought not, it must not. The prophets, the evangelists, were intelligent. They were honest. They were sincere. But yet I rest not my salvation on their veracity. Their word, their oath, the whole tenor of their character and testimony of the truth of their writings is comparatively of little importance. It will not make the infidel a believer. A believer never rests his faith on such a foundation. How shall we know the scriptures to be of divine inspiration? Miracles accompany their delivery. The Lord God appeared and spake. He lent his power to the creature. Effects were publicly produced otherwise impossible. This was proof to all the witnesses. They had ground of faith in the accompanying doctrine. But miracles are past. The report is to me dependent on the testimony of my fellows. It is credible, but not infallible. It is not the formal reason of my faith. The Bible is its own witness. It exhibits its divinity to my understanding and my heart by its light and by its power. The system of prophecy and the particularly the book of Revelation is one continued miracle. It increases in clearness as the day progresses. It gathers strength from the revolutions of empires and the flight of time. It shows Jehovah in the midst of his empire, planning, predicting, and accomplishing. Every age adds new events to the records, and each additional event is a new witness to the Christian religion. While we subscribe then to the doctrine, 
that the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. Footnote, larger catechism, end of footnote. The Scripture predictions in connection with their accomplishment furnish an argument which it is impossible to understand and to dispute. Number three. The apocalyptical prophecy supplies additional proof to the doctrine of the divine providence and decrees. God's decrees and providence may be justly considered together. The doctrine of both is supported by the same argument and opposed by the same persons with the same objections. It cannot be consistently affirmed that he works without a plan or that his plan will remain unexecuted. Whatever he brings to pass, he therefore must have determined to bring to pass, and whatever he wills, that will he perform. So far as his providence extends, his decree extends, and no further. The scriptures assert that this extent is to all things. The universe is under his government, from the fall of a sparrow to the whole result of the final judgment. This doctrine is expressed in one sentence by the Apostle Paul, who was not ashamed to, his own, to own himself a predestinarian. Ephesians 1.11 Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Upon this principle, the doctrine of prophecy proceeds, and were consistency to be expected from men, we must conclude that no man would ever believe in prophecy without being a predestinarian. From prophecy, it is abundantly evident that God foretold some events as infallibly certain. They must have therefore been foreseen as certain. In order to be foreseen as certain, the event must have been infallibly fixed. It must have been rendered thus fixed by an, by an adequate cause, co-eternal with the divine foreknowledge. This cause must have been divine, for no creature then existed. The divine cause, however, of the cer certain futurition of events cannot be better named than by calling it the purpose of God, the counsel of His will, the divine decree. It, it admits that this proves only that some events are decreed. This, however, is enough to justify against every objection the whole doctrine of God's sovereignty. These objections lie in all their force against any event whatever being brought about according to the decree and by the providence of God. All objections to the doctrine are resolved into these two. It is inconsistent with human liberty. It is inconsistent with God's righteousness. But it, but it is no more inconsistent in one case than in another. He who can secure, without destroying moral agency or doing unrighteousness, the complete fulfillment of any one of his own predictions can certainly accomplish upon the same principles all his purposes, can work all things after the counsel of his own will. The fulfillment of prophecy manifests that, in many instances, this is in fact the case, and of course proves that there is no valid objection against the doctrine. Why then deceive yourselves, ye professors of the Christian faith, who deny the divine decrees? Why deceive yourselves by doubtful reasonings against this doctrine? You plan, you contrive, you employ your influence so extensively, so far into futurity, as is in your power. Can you at the same time be reluctant in granting to God, to your God and Savior, the right of settling through his empire what he shall do with the work of his hands? Will you not trust his equity without setting limits to his plans?
Can you not maintain human, liber- human liberty, but at the same expense of placing the Almighty under restraints, as if he could not govern man without destroying his rational nature? Examine, I beseech you, the scheme of prophecy. There you will be able to see the event certain, the decree unalterably fixed, the providence of God extending to everything. Man, still a free agent, acting voluntarily, and in all cases both accountable for his conduct and also overruled for accomplishing the divine purpose. You will see all this not as a disputed theory, but as matter of fact. You will rejoice that the universe is under such government and will say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Number 4. The book of Revelation is useful in furnishing a continual warning to Christians to separate themselves from all anti-Christian connections. It exhibits the grand apostasy of the Roman Empire in all its horrors. It points out its unceasing hostility to the mediatorial empire of our Savior during the remarkable period of 1260 years so often specified in this book. It proclaims in language too plain to be misunderstood the tyranny, the hypocrisy, and the persecuting spirit of the nation and the churches, of the beast and of the false prophet. It warns the saints of their danger, points out their condition and their duty, and demands from them a faithful testimony against the prevailing corruptions. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Such is the language, my brethren, of this prophecy to you. It calls upon you to have no communion with unfruitful works of darkness. It exhorts you not to embark your affections, your hopes, or your peace of mind in the cause of any part of the anti-Christian policy. It invites you to repose in confidence of the divine protection under the shadow of his wings. It assures you that it is both happy and safe to know and to do the will of your heavenly Father as expressed in the Apocalypse. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Lecture 2. An Outline of the Contents of the Apocalypse. Revelation 119. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. This commandment was addressed by Jesus Christ to the Apostle John, called in the title of the book, John the Divine. The name, Greek word, the theologian or divine, was bestowed upon him by the fathers in a peculiar sense because he, more than any other of the inspired writers of the New Testament, discussed the sublime mysteries of Christian theology and particularly asserted and enforced the doctrine of Christ's divinity. Of him too, it was said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Unto him were granted the visions which are written in this book, The revelation of Jesus Christ was signified unto his servant John, who bare record of all things that he saw. Footnote, verses 1 and 2. End of footnote. This venerable man, who had lived in habits of the nearest intimacy with his Savior, had witnessed his private friendships and devotions, had leaned on his bosom at the Last Supper, and who had stood by his cross while he suffered death for our redemption, now remained alone, the last of the apostles to instruct by inspiration the rising churches. Far advanced in years, with the fervor of youthful zeal, mellowed by the experience of age, he cherished for the numerous believers of the first century the feelings of an affectionate parent. 
His distinguished usefulness provoked from the enemies of Christianity a malevolence which neither his mildness or ma- of manners nor his hair- hoary hairs could disarm. John was persecuted. Domitian, the Roman emperor, the degenerate son of the amiable Vespasian, was a man of ambition and blood. He succeeded to the purple at the death of his brother Titus and surpassed, if possible, Nero himself in baseness and cruelty. By his orders, a war of extermination was waged against the Christians and the Apostle Paul, after a series of other sufferings, was banished into the isle which was then called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Footnote, verse 9, end of footnote. This took place in the 15th year of the reign of Domitian, A.D. 95, being the 90th year of the Apostles' age and 62 years after the crucifixion of our Savior. Patmos, since called Patino or Palmosa, lies upon the coast of Asia, not far from the island of Samos. In that arm of the Mediterranean which stretches to the northward between Europe and Asia and bears the name of the Archipelago or Aegean Sea. This island is one of the most barren spots that can well be imagined. Even at the present day, notwithstanding the industry of the Kaloyer monks who attempt its cultivation and have consecrated its rocks to superstition, it was then a desert. Here the persecutor hoped that the exile would die of famine. He was, however, disappointed. The same God who supported Moses and Elijah for many weeks together without food revealed himself to the beloved disciple and by his power supported his body while by the revelation made to him his solitude was sweetened and his seclusion from society made a distinguished blessing to the Church of Christ. In the early ages of the Church there was no dispute about the authenticity of the book of Revelation nor anyone to deny that the Apostle John was the writer. When, however, in process of time, the question of the millennium became a subject of violent controversy, the apocalypse itself was attacked. The, the millenarians rested their doctrine upon the 20th chapter of, their, of this book, and their antagonist, in pursuit of victory more than truth, denied the canonical authority of a work which seemed to lend its aid to what they deemed a dangerous hypothesis. The objections thus raised were handed down to succeeding ages, Unsanctified literature takes pride in collecting and repeating them. The argument for rejecting from the canon the book of Revelation is stated in full force by the learned Michaelis in the very elaborate work An Introduction to the New Testament as in, and is convincingly refuted by Mr. Woodhouse in his Introduction to A New Translation of the Apocalypse. It is a remark very frequently and very justly already made that no part of the sacred volume is less dependent upon historical testimony than this book. Its own prophecies, fulfilled and fulfilling, proclaim its divine origin. It is nevertheless true that the external evidence of its authenticity is various, clear, and conclusive. The testimony of Irenaeus would be decisive in a court of justice. He was a man of intelligence and veracity. His opportunity of knowing the truth upon this subject cannot be disputed. He was born soon after the date of the Apocalypse. He was by birth a Greek and brought up under the ministry of the celebrated Polycarp, who was contemporary with the Apostle of John and actually settled in Smyrna, one of those Asian churches to which an epistle is addressed in the book of Revelation. Irenaeus, removed from Asia, 
and was settled in Lyons, the second city of France, for commerce and opulence. He maintained, after his removal, a constant correspondence with the Asiatic churches. In his own character he was confessedly learned, prudent, and pious. He made the Apocalypse his particular study, comparing the several manuscript copies of it and appealing in case of disputed passages to the testimony of apostolical men. Irenaeus, in many instances, ascribes this book to John the Evangelist, the disciple of the Lord, that John who leaned on his Lord's breast at the Last Supper, and expressly says of the Revelation, It was not seen a long time ago, but almost in our own age, toward the end of Domitian's reign. This witness is supported by many others. Footnote. See Woodhouse's Introduction, etc. End of footnote. Yea, Polycarp himself, an auditor of the Apostle John and a minister of the Church of Smyrna, begins the solemn prayer which he uttered at the stake when about to seal by martyrdom the testimony which he held with the words of Revelation 11.17. Greek words. I offer no apology for prolonging thus far the introduction of my discourse. It appeared to me necessary to say so much about the writer of the Apocalypse previous to laying it before you. An outline of its contents. The general arrangement of its several parts is laid down in the command of our Lord, which is now the subject of discussion. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Correct method is important in every pursuit. Science cannot exist without it. A few facts on any subject under consideration, regularly classified, furnish more real information than thousands assembled without order and without discrimination. This principle, so well attested by the several branches of nature and moral science, ought not to be neglected by the expositor of the apocalyptical visions. Here, method is necessary to prevent confusion, to ascertain events, and to understand the mysteries of this book. Several excellent commentators infer from the words of my text a threefold division of the general contents of this book. According to this arrangement, the things which thou hast seen, Greek word, are limited to the contents of this chapter, from the twelfth to the seventeenth verse, and constitute part one of the whole book. Part two embraces the things which are, Greek word, the present condition of seven churches of Asia Minor, addressed and described in the second and third chapters. Part three, by far the largest, re- respects the things which shall be, Greek word, including the remaining part of the book from the fourth chapter to the end. This arrangement appears to me perfectly correct. I have attended to all that Lord Napier, Dr. Johnston, Mr. Woodhouse, and several other learned men have offered in behalf of a twofold division without being convinced of its propriety. I readily acknowledge that the original text will admit their translation, write the things which thou seest, even the things which are, and the things which are about to be. But it does not require it, and the standard version is, in this instance, more congenial without, with the context. The Apostle had already, under the influence of inspiration, seen things worthy of being recorded. Descriptive addresses to several churches then existing were about to be delivered to him, and both these, as well as the predictions of future events, are actually written in this book. The fact is the best commentary on the precept. John did as he was commanded. Verse 10. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath. 
Deprived of the ordinances of public worship, in which he had long taken delight, this first day of the week provided eminent communion with his Redeemer and furnished means of improvement to the Church of God in a degree superior to anything which might have been expected from his own sermons or exhortations to any congregation in which he would have been laboring that day, had not the power of persecution prevailed. Thus doth God make the wrath of man to praise him. In the concerns of life, we are limited to the reception and communication of ideas to the exercise of our faculties through the medium of bodily organs. Therefore are we said to be in the body. But when the Spirit of God communicates what is independent of our own organs and by a supernatural power supersedes the immediate exercise of our bodily senses, it may be with propriety said, we are in the Spirit. The vision of bliss which the Apostle Paul had in heaven... 2 Corinthians 12.3 was of such a description as that he could not positively say whether he received it through the medium of the natural organs of perception or in the same manner in which disembodied spirits communicate ideas to one another. And he accordingly says, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. To be in the spirit, to have the spirit in us, and to be inspired are terms of the same signification. Footnote, Matthew 22.43, Ezekiel 2.2, Revelation 4.2, Johnson in Loco. End of footnote. That inspiration which the Apostle had in Patmos is chiefly of the species called vision. The Holy Spirit presented objects to his understanding precisely as they would have been perceived if actually addressed to his sense of sight. The visions were, however usually accompanied with suitable explanation, and both are found in the first as well as in the last part of the Apocalypse. So soon as John was inspired, he was directed to write this book, giving an account of all his visions. Verse 11. What thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. This is the general command. Under it the Apocalypse was written, and copies were transmitted to the several churches. Greek word, write that, whatsoever thou seest, all the visions of inspiration, whatsoever is revealed to thee, write. The command to write is repeated in verse 19, and the Greek word, the whole contents of the Apocalypse, divided into three parts. The first part, what thou hast seen, Greek word, is of course limited to that which is contained between this and the former command. It is that part of the visions of this book which had been already vouchsafed to the inspired writer. Part 1 The Vision of the Son of Man, the Candlesticks and the Stars This general division is very short. It is contained in the first chapter from the 12th to the 17th verse. It is, however, a very interesting vision and a happily introductory to each of the other general divisions of the Apocalypse. While it displays in a remarkable manner the dignity of Christ's person and the extent of his authority over things visible and invisible, it furnishes an application of symbolical language eminently useful in illustrating the succeeding prophecies. I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. 
And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as as the sun shineth in his strength. In this striking representation, the Redeemer of the Church appears exalted above all creatures, God, man, preserving and sanctifying his churches, supporting and directing the angels or ministers, and promoting the glory of the Godhead by securing our salvation. The scenery is borrowed partly from the system of the universe, as in the mention of sun and stars, and partly from the Old Testament temple service, wherein the high priest and the golden candlesticks prefigured Messiah and the several churches. The phraseology and the application of it coincide with the prediction of Daniel, chapter 10. The churches and ministers are said to be seven in number because it was intended to make a special communication of the apocalypse to seven particular churches, and because also seven is a symbol of completeness, both among Jews and Gentiles, and in this sense repeatedly employed in the work which we are considering. Footnote. The number seven as a symbol will be more largely explained hereafter. End of footnote. Part 2. Description of the actual condition of the seven churches. This part of the Apocalypse embraces the second and third chapters. It is longer than the first, but it is short compared with the third part. The first part served not only to give a general and happy view of the Mediator, in connection with his church and her ministers universally, but also to show the particular interest which he had in each community, as exemplified in the case of seven adjacent cities in Asia Minor. This part, by describing the religious state of several well-known churches, serves to illustrate the general principle of Christ's superintendency, as well as to show in all ages the things in ecclesiastical bodies, of which he approves or disapproves. An actual description, moreover, of these churches, which are here addressed, served in the first instance both to procure a ready reception for this inspired book, and also to confirm the faith of the primitive Christians in a work which portrayed with so much fidelity and accuracy the state of religion in the cities to which it referred. Thus, by a declaration of general principles in the first place, and by a delineation of existing facts in the second, the way is prepared for entering upon that prospective history which in the third place constitutes the principal part of the Apocalypse. The seven epistles now under consideration are accordingly to be viewed as history. They are, of course, at present as interesting as ever. They illustrate doctrine, they inculcate obedience, now as well as in the first or second century. The character in them described and the treatment due to it from the moral governor of the universe will always be profitable subjects of investigation. In this point of view, therefore, these epistles may be said to have a prospective reference. The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. To the churches of America, of Africa, and of Europe, as well as those of Asia, they will be applicable, so far as their character corresponds with that which is given in this book. I am not, however, capable of perceiving any advantage to be derived from giving to this part of the Apocalypse the title of prophecy. It is, to say the least of it, straining a point without an adequate object. There have not been wanting commentators who class these seven epistles among the prediction of future events. 
Such interpreters represent each of the Asiatic churches mentioned in the Revelation, not as an ecclesiastical body, then in fact existing, but as a symbol, either of a particular era of the Christian world, or of some great section of the Church of God. With the aid of a little fancy, and some ingenuity, of which, some learn, of which learned men are always fond, the description of the second and third chapters are converted into so many allegories, and are applied accordingly either to seven great periods in the progress of Christianity, or to seven grand divisions of Christendom. I have heard, upon this principle, the Church of Philadelphia represented by one learned friend as the type of millennium, and by another, profoundly versed in allegory, as the type of the present state of religion in the United States of America. This mode of interpretation is liable to many objections. First, upon this principle it would be impossible to determine what in scripture is history and what parable or allegory. There is no toleration except in cases of necessity for deviating from the literal and obvious meaning. Two, there were, when the apocalypse was written, situate in the lesser Asia seven Christian churches in cities of the names set down in this book and there is no intimation in the book itself that these were not the communities intended to be addressed. 3. There is nothing in the whole contents of these epistles to forbid a, a literal interpretation of them as applicable to the actual churches of Asia. 4. The text of this discourse certainly distinguishes the things that are from the, the things which shall be hereafter, the description of the present condition from the prediction of future events, but there is no history left if we include the seven epistles among the prophecies. By comparing chapter 1 verse 19 with chapter 4 verse 1, it will readily appear that the prophetical part of the revelation does not commence until the fourth chapter. Therefore, these seven epistles are narrative. There, number 5. There is no key whatever for dividing time into seven distinct periods bearing any resemblance to these epistles. They cannot be made to apply to the seven periods. Footnote. That the prophetic period is sevenfold will afterwards appear. End of footnote. Into which the prophetic part is divided. History, indeed, affords such a variety of views of different ages that ingenuity can devise some periods resembling the Asian churches. But each prophecy has a key of its own, and we are not to indulge fancy in accommodating history to prediction. No such key is found in the second and third chapters. Part 3. Visions of Futurity This part of the Apocalypse commences with the fourth chapter as it is distinctly announced by a voice from heaven accompanied too with an immediate influence of the Divine Spirit. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. From these words it is obvious that the general division, the things which shall be hereafter, is not only justified but also distinctly stated to begin with the vision, narrated chapter 4 and 5. It is to this part that I design to turn, in a more particular manner, your attention. It contains an outline of history from the apostolical age to the end of the world. The several prophecies were revealed to the Apostle John in fourteen separate visions. 
These were successfully vouchsafed to him with all the necessary means of understanding them and of faithfully narrating them for our instruction. Footnote, Johnston, end of footnote. Three of these visions relate to the condition of the church among the nations of the earth generally and to the opposition made from the various quarters against true religion. One of them respects the millennium and one the state of future glory. Nine are employed in describing that most perplexing and distressing period which has usually been known in the church by the designation anti-Christian. These visions do not exactly pursue a chronological order. There is indeed a general respect to the progress of time. But in order to show the connection of events, it was deemed necessary to attend to the chain of cause and effect until each great subject of discussion should be fully brought into view. The prophecy, after this, returns to the consideration of other important subjects, which may have been either contemporary with the former or even prior to it in the order of time. It appears to me that to follow these visions in the order in which they stand and so to unfold their meaning would be an excellent method of explaining the prophecies of the Apocalypse. Such an arrangement would combine simplicity and novelty with a more formal development of the peculiar imagery of the apocalyptical style than any other method of discussion. So far as I know, such an arrangement has not been adopted by any commentator. The order of the several chapters and the chronological order have most frequently been pursued by commentators except in those instances in which dissertations have been given upon the several spe special subjects which appeared to an author most interesting. The chain of connection, however, laid down in the Revelation itself, the history of the public interests of true religion in the Roman Empire, is the one which I have determined to follow. It connects the predictions of the Old Testament prophets, particularly those of Daniel, respecting the latter days, with this prospective history given in this book. It binds together in one continuous whole, extending through a long succession of ages, the leading events of the Christian world, and it preserves the chronological arrangement sufficiently distinct for all useful purposes. It affords the best opportunity of developing the great moral principles of social order among the children of men, with precision, perspicuity, and comprehension. It forms the best index for the study of all authentic history, and it furnishes to men of extended views and liberal sentiment the most abundant motives for pursuing in the present age a general course of policy characterized by magnanimity, intelligence, and integrity. It, accordingly, by holding up, in a steady and clear light, suitable examples both for warning and for imitation, tends in a remarkable degree to correct the practice of accommodation and shuffling by which the several actors upon the great theater of the ecclesiastical world attempt to render the pursuits of religion subordinate to personal ease or elevation or avarice. The principle which is always obvious and which gives unity to the whole of the prophetic declaration is the connection between the Christian religion and social order in the human family. This grand principle, interesting in the highest degree to every philanthropist, worthy of the most minute attention of the Christian divine and the philo philosophic civilian, is selected by the prophet Daniel, and after his exhibition of it, is more largely illustrated in its various bearings upon the actual state of the nations of the earth 
in the predictions of the book of Revelation. The prophet Daniel takes it up from that time in which the forms of social order, divinely prescribed for the nation of the Hebrews, were destroyed by the Chaldean conqueror and illustrates its history during a long period, principally of trial and pain, until the time of the millennium. During the whole of this period, consisting of about 2,500 years from the subjugation of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the prophet exhibits the church of God in a state of depression, and the character of the kingdoms of this world, hostile to the moral principles which Jehovah commands the sons of men to observe in their collective as well as in their individual capacity. The triumphs of the unrighteousness over religion and morality, and over the peace, the persons, and the rights of men, especially of religious men, are depicted in the page of inspiration with a pencil as bold as it is correct. The governments of the earth are, so far as they have any proximity to the Church of the Most High, represented by him who best knows their character, as both irreligious and oppressive. Of, the, of these, four great successive systems are described in the second and seventh chapters of Daniel, as, in turn, obtaining universal empire and together occupying the whole time. A wild beast, Greek word, is the fit symbol of their character. It is the symbol of immorality, impiety, and oppression. A wild beast is ungovernable and prone to destroy. These empires are disobedient to God and destructive to man. They appear in the following order. Beast is the prophetical symbol of an immoral, tyrannical power. Footnote. Calmet. In this, all commentators are agreed. Greek word, wild beast, ought to be carefully distinguished from Greek word, living being. Chapter 4. The former word is by the Greek writers peculiarly applied to venomous animals. Parkhurst thinks the Greek word may be derived from Hebrew word to divide or tear. Vossius divides it from the Hebrew word to run wild, a wild ass, whence also the Latin words and the English ferocious. In Acts 28.4 it denotes a viper. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul, quoting the poet Epimenides in Titus 1.12, applies the word to the inhabitants of Crete. And Seussur, in his thesaurus, shows that it is usual with the Greek and Roman writers to apply such epithets to cruel and unreasonable men. Josephus calls Herod, Greek words, a wild beast, a murderous wild beast. Civil power, opposed to religion, is unreasonable and wicked. God instructs us to esteem such rulers as wild beasts. End of footnote. Daniel's four beasts are the great universal empires as follow. First, the Chaldean Empire from the capture of Jerusalem to that of Babylon, 50 years. Second, Medo-Persian, 208 years. Third, Grecian, 266 years. Fourth, the Roman Empire under its various forms from the time Pompey reduced Jerusalem unto the close of the seventh vial, 1,930 years bringing a total of 2,454 years. Footnote. Calmet's Dictionary. Supplement on the word prophecy. End of footnote. Before the revelation was given to John the Divine, the fourth beast of Daniel, or the Roman Empire, had obtained full power, 
The prophecies of this book, of course, respect the general principle, that is, the connection between the Christian religion and social order, chiefly as it refers to the Roman power and to the state of the Church within the bounds of that astonishing empire. This consideration is an index to the several visions. It must not be forgotten by the expositor of prophecy. By far the greatest part of the apocalypse relates to this object. The seals and the trumpets and the vials constitute the great chain which connects all the prophecies into a regular system in explanation of the principle stated above. And all these have respect to the Roman Empire. They afford an enlarged history of the fourth beast and its opposition to the Christian Church. The order which I am to follow in these lectures is now sketched out. I shall begin the exposition of the apocalyptical predictions with a view of the sealed book and proceed to an interpretation of the seven seals. I shall then explain the seven trumpets. I shall afterwards go on to the consideration of the seven vials. These three periods which, which precede in the history of Christianity, the commencement of the millennium occupy the whole of this book from the beginning of the fourth to the twentieth chapter. I shall, however, close this lecture with a summary account of the contents of the book of Revelation given at one view. Part 1 is an introductory vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in his mediatorial character, head over all things to his body, the church. Part 2 is a series of letters addressed to seven churches mentioned by name, of letters which unfold the religious condition and explain the duty of these several churches. Part 3 is prophetical. It gives a history of Christ's kingdom, explaining the maxims of religion in application to social institutions among men. It carries forward and, at greater length, illustrates the predictions of other prophets, especially Daniel, as they relate to the fourth universal empire or Roman Empire. And its whole contents are subdivided into seven distinct periods. The seven distinct periods of the apocalyptical prophecy are the following. That is, first, the period of the seals. It respects the history of the pagan Roman Empire as it is connected with the progress of the Christian religion. Second, the period of the trumpets. It respects the history of the empire after Christianity became in name, but not in spirit and in truth, the established religion, with a view of the manner in which the events of the period affected the actual church of God. Third, the period of the vials. It represents the decline and fall of the anti-Christian empire. Fourth, the period of the millennium. Then nations shall not only cease to be immoral and tyrannical, but all social institutions shall be sanctified and all ecclesiastical and civil affairs be rendered conformable to the word of God in spirit and design. Fifth, the period of subsequent deterioration of Gog and Magog. Sixth, the period of the final judgment. Seventh, the period of celestial glory. This order of the prophecies, said the very judicious lowman, is, I think, intelligible and natural, and I believe more agreeable to the important facts in history than other systems. It is certain such a plan will well answer the useful designs of prophecy in general to prepare the church to expect opposition and sufferings in this present world to support good men under all their trials of faith and patience, to give encouragement to perseverance in the true religion, whatever dangers may attend it, to assure the attention of providence and the protection of God to his own cause 
that no opposition shall finally prevail against it, that the judgments of God shall punish the enemies of true religion, that their opposition to truth and righteousness shall surely end in their own destruction, when the faithful perseverance of true Christians shall be crowned with a glorious state of immortal life and happiness. Let us, my brethren, endeavor to secure for ourselves an interest in that religion which will certainly enable us to support with fidelity toward God the profession of our faith, and also after the toils of this life are ended, to pass into the place of perfect holiness and happiness. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.